Well, welcome and good morning. A uh, quick announcement uh, before we begin in the Word. Uh, as the month of December comes, comes close, we have uh, what is known as the time of Advent, the four um, Sundays that we gather together in the month of December where you're celebrating or anticipating the incarnation of Christ. Uh, so this year we are uh, going to be doing something a little bit different in terms of how that looks. Uh, meaning there'll be a, a, a couple of liturgical changes, if you will. Uh, generally, what we've done since we've started is we have um, some type of, of song uh, that begins uh, the time of worship, and then we'll have announcements, scripture reading, three, two to three more songs, the, the sermon, and uh, another song or Lord's Supper. And so for all four Sundays, it's going to look... You're going to be like, why is he taking time? This is pretty simple to understand, but we just don't want you to be caught unawares, is we're going to have the announcements um, prior to any of the actual elements, and then after the announcements, we'll have the scripture reading, which will be the official beginning of the time of uh, corporate or public worship. After the first scripture reading, there'll be two songs, and then there will be the time of the word, and then there'll be... Um, a time after the word of the Lord's Supper, and then after the Lord's Supper, we'll have two final songs that'll be a uh, songs of thanksgiving, wrapping up all of the elements of worship. So it'll be uh, the Lord's Supper will be every Sunday in December, and the the order will just look different. Now this, for those of you who are back here back when we were doing Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll know like this was talked about a long time ago. Um, we don't move fast around here. And so we are doing this on uh, this time of Advent, and uh, we just wanted you to know that it was going to be a, a little bit different on, on those four Sundays. So if you have any questions or comments, um, please feel free to talk to the four current sitting elders. Stuart and I are actually not sitting elders right now, so that would be uh, Bo, Philip, Mike, and Fred. You can't ask me questions about it. Now we're continuing or finishing the, the, the teaching in, in Matthew chapter 19 on divorce, remarriage, singleness. And if you had to think of this as the idea of what constitutes the family, particularly the family as it's defined in the New Testament church, all of those who are gathered together called the elect of God, indwelt by the Spirit, and the realities of who makes up that family. And so, while we covered some of this last week, there was still much more that I wanted to cover or needed to cover, and so we will finish that out today. And so I'll be reading from 19, 1 through 12, the same as last week, but primarily still focusing on um, particularly in 7 through 12. If you are visiting here, I'll be reading through the entirety of 1 through 12 in chapter 19 of the Gospel according to Matthew out loud, and then giving you and everyone a time of silent prayer to God, and then I will pray for us corporately. So please now turn to the Gospel according to Matthew 
as we read 19, 1 through 12. Matthew wrote, Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as your church gathers here on the Lord's Day, we come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, our Redeemer and Savior. And those of us who are clothed in his righteousness, regenerate and dwelt by God the Holy Spirit, Lord, we gather today in order to set aside whatever burdens we carry, whatever our minds are are thinking of outside of the aspect of worshiping you, Lord, we ask through the Spirit now you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, transfix our spirits on you, God. And through your word, And through the quickening and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, may your people be made more and more into the image of Christ. May their affections be turned from idols that have been created in their own life to you, Lord. 
We pray for the unbelievers in our midst. That through the power of the word and the spirit, they would be drawn to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we pray now this time as our continued public worship that your name would be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Not to go over everything that I did last week. Some of you weren't here. Some of you were. It was in essence a, a kind of just focusing on these initial points that Jesus responds to the question from his opponents, the Pharisees, about whether or not for any reason a man could divorce his wife. I explained in this culture that it was the, the simplest of things. It could have been a man could have turned to his wife and said, leave my house. And that was all he needed to do. Please no sarcastic comments later at lunch today. That was, that was in essence all that needed to happen. And so we talked about then why, and, and Jesus points back to creation order. Adam and Eve made from his flesh and then returned to him. And so this emphasis on marriage in this one fleshness where they are one substance, if you will, not to be separated by man, either someone outside of their union or just of their own volition. And in that one fleshness is this idea of, yet, it is after the fall. These are sinful people. And so people were divorcing their wives. Men were putting away their wives with callous ease. And so when these Pharisees actually turn to the law, they believe they've trapped Jesus by saying, he's talking about Adam and Eve. I'm going to talk about Moses and the fact that in Deuteronomy, he commanded that we are able to give our certificate of divorce to our wives. And Jesus corrects him, saying, no, because of your hard-heartedness, he allowed you. Meaning there was an allowance, but the divorce itself, the fact of sundering that flesh which was put together is in fact evil and a hallmark of the fall. Divorce then should not be a celebration or a virtue. Rather, it's always pointing to the fact that sin in that moment has been victorious. And so there's an explicit or implicit, I should say, anti-divorce way in which Jesus is speaking and at the same time acknowledging that people are going to get divorced. And so I left last week saying... Sorry, I don't know why this eye's burning. If it looks like I'm winking at you or I'm rubbing it a lot, I apologize. I'm not winking at you. 
But based on that, leaving last week, we came to the place where here in this particular point of, of discussion, Jesus, as this story is, is, is used both in Mark and Luke, but Matthew is unique in that Matthew is the only one that has this particular provision. Meaning, so going back to seven, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so, pointing to Adam and Eve, the one fleshness. Let no man separate what God has put together. And then nine, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. In, in Luke and Mark, there is no clause for sexual immorality. They just both write, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And so it's a statement of fact of what the person is doing if they're divorcing their wife and remarrying. And then so... We talked about last week the, the idea of, of uh, sexual morality or adultery, um, a breaking of the one fleshness. And then that was giving an allowance, at least in the church, and is that there's an allowance that if someone's committed adultery, then the spouse is free to divorce them. And then looking at 1 Corinthians 7, we talked about Paul giving a, a believing spouse and the allowance to divorce their wife if their unbelieving spouse deserts them or abandons them. And then I extrapolated a bit on some more context on what else you could include in abandonment, in particular talked about physical abuse, meaning the standard of that covenant union of marriage that the husband, if he is physically abusing his wife has sundered that relationship and that one fleshness by his actions. And so by her need for protection of her children and her own life is a higher standard than is her staying in such a state. Again, I use some historical examples as well as, as others just to say that those kind of provisions are given of if you were to divorce based on those few things and you got remarried, it would not be considered adultery. But that is not the vast majority of divorce. And that's the cold reality that we have to look at. And, and the reality is most divorce has to do with other reasons. And we talked about, I think I called it a zombie marriage last week, where, where this idea of, or a sitcom marriage, as it began to be so popular in the 80s, the husband's a moron, the wife can't stand them, they don't like each other at all, and all that kind of stuff, is, is the reality is, is that though divorce will continue to happen. And so what I've set aside today is, what is the reality for the Christian man and woman who have been divorced and have remarried? What does that mean based on what I said last week or what I've called and I think is easily provable is an anti-divorce and remarriage ideology or teaching here? And yet at the same time, divorce and remarriage happens all the time and it happened all the time during this time as well, including the early church. 
Well, one of the things that we generally do is never talk about it. It's why it feels so uncomfortable in here right now, because we're talking about it. But I don't want to leave anyone excluded, and neither did Christ. And the reality is, if you really go back to the teaching that Jesus said, the one fleshness betrayal, when we talk about the physical act of adultery, Jesus is like, what are you talking about? If you look on a woman with lust who is not your wife, you have committed adultery. And the same standard goes for women as well. Oh, okay. The same goes for coveting. Have you ever thought of the, 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 the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments? You shall not covet your neighbor's everything. And yet, man, look at that car. It would look better in my driveway. but Or whatever it might be, whatever your thing might be. You shall not steal. <laughs> we were talking about this on Wednesday nights, and someone brought up, well, what if you're sharing a Netflix account? And you're like, oh my gosh, that is stealing. It is, it's stealing. <laughs> you shouldn't have been that obvious, my friend. Um, and in all these ways, is just like this allowance that Moses gave the Israelites to divorce, it was done so to regulate the health and, a, and, and kind of well-being in this culture at the time of the women who had no recourse. A woman could have born a husband, multiple children, and he could just say, I found someone better, get out of my house. And she had no recourse, no ability to do anything, including get remarried, because she would have seen, been seen as sullied. And so the certificate was to ensure that she could remarry, ensure that the people of Israel were taking care of everyone within the household of God. Now, something else to consider. If it's not these two provisions of sexual immorality and, and um, abandonment, the way that it's written, particularly in Luke and Mark, is if a husband divorces his wife and gets remarried, he's an adulterer. And if she gets married, she's an adulterer. And by extension of this teaching, so are the people that they remarried. And yet it's not treated in a way, either in this text or throughout history, where then if you've been divorced and remarried in the church, that somehow you are a second-class citizen within the church. Amen. That somehow the sin or the failure of your marriage has somehow made you less in the spirit or the household of God. Any less than the person who has hated their brother in their heart has committed murder. And yet it's one of those things we refuse to talk about. No matter where you are in life, you will meet Christian men and women who have divorced and remarried, not under these provisions. And they are Christians who have sinned and failed just as you have. Now, 
I say this with an extreme emphasis on agreeing with what seems to be what Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is saying. If you are in this state of either a widow or a divorced individual, stay single. But he knows that that's not the normative place where people are. If a person is divorced and they meet somebody or whatever it might be, or or they eventually come to a place where they want to get remarried, you may counsel them, don't get married, stay single. That's what Paul said. But if they do get married, what do you do? When you see them every time, do you go, I understand you think you got married, but in my eyes, that doesn't count. So says Ken. Yet the reality is, that's where we are. We're in the, we're in the mix of life with people. So this is my... call to the church... If you've been divorced and remarried, the spouse that you have here and now, take this as it was in the beginning mandate of one flesh and let it not be sundered. And for the people in the church who have a hard time hearing this and disagree with me, it goes the same as I said last week. No one gets to talk to me today about it. You can call me tomorrow. But the reality is, is like, we're not supposed to be treating people different in church if that happens to be the case. We are all sinners, fall short of the glory of God. And at many times throughout our lives... We fail. And sin claims victory in a little bit. We have to be reminded that sin is defeated as a whole. Be merciful, be gracious to one another. Marriage as we talked on a Wednesday night, is the proving ground of your faith. If you are married, your husband, your wife, it is the proving ground of your faith. Divorce has a brutal impact. Many of us have felt it as children or as adults. And it can transform the way a person thinks about the world. Don't believe me. Talk to any person who's an adult now whose parents got divorced when they were young. Its effects never never fade. And yet we're called to redeem 
all that we have by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And so let's make a compact one with another, with a, with a congregation, a church this size. It's really easy. We're going to be there for each other, particularly in the issues that come up with sinners marrying sinners. Little idol worshipers whose idol is their own face that they like to shine and go, look how pretty. Marrying one another and trying to glorify God in all of life. Can we all agree that if that's the proving ground for married men and women that we're here for each other? Yes? Jesus isn't done with this particular discussion. He leaves it in the following ways. Divorce happens, if I can paraphrase Jesus. But that's not what God intended prior to the fall. Moses gave that provision of divorce simply and purely because you are sinners and heart of heart. Making you callous towards one another. So here's an understanding of what happens if you marry, divorce, and remarry. The impact, the devastation it causes, etc. And it's one of those instances where the disciples answer and they're just, they've been doing pretty good. They told Jesus, like, you're the Messiah. They were given the keys of the kingdom. They were told all of these things. And when they hear the need for them to view marriage in the way that Jesus teaches, their response is, what? We can't just give the divorce certificate whenever we feel like it, whenever... Look what their response is. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Men of their time raised in a certain way, an understanding of what their rights were when it came to marriage. The very idea that, yeah, I'm saying these vows and I'm making this financial agreement with her family, but if I become disappointed, I can just back out. And that hasn't changed much throughout the millennia, has it? The callous way in which Culture views marriage. One of the the latest uh, things to to kind of go in American household, 23% of American households are made up of a husband, a wife, and children. 23%. That's it. The rest is either 26%, I believe, are single households of single adults, and then the rest is just kind of a mixed bag of of families together or or disparate groups or or things like that or just roommates for life kind of thing. But it's a very 23% of American households actually contain a mother, a father, and children. And so, the way that our society looks on marriage today, marriage, 
age keeps getting higher and higher and higher. And so singles are predominantly older and older. And so this has been a trend that's been going on for a long time. And as a society turns on marriage, you see, unfortunately, the creep of that into the church. I say this, and this isn't from the elders, this is just from Ken. Get married young. Get married young. Have children right away. Because when your daughter is born when you are 40, it is difficult. (laughs) When your son is suddenly running six-minute miles and you're like, I can do that, and just stuff stops working when you try, I can't do that. I don't think I could ever do that, but I had to try. But that was the emphasis. Meet someone, get married young, view children as how God describes them, a blessing from God, an inheritance from the Lord. See that as your your true pool, pool of who you are discipling in the faith, your children. Raise them in the wisdom of knowledge of God. And so then you're actually spry enough when they get older to where you don't have to fight dirty when you're wrestling your sons. The church needs to be reminded of the importance of marriage. But Jesus points to something just as important. When his disciples go, and they actually, one of the first times you're going to see them in this gospel, even from the early parts, they're agreeing with his opponents. Better to not get married then if I can't divorce my wife easily. But then Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He says this, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, if it was uncomfortable for you to hear eunuch that many times, it was more so to have had to say it for a couple weeks in a row. And so I'll make this as painless as possible. What he's talking about here is he's pointing them to something that's particularly in the last portion that he's trying to get to that Paul talks at length at in 1 Corinthians 7. He's talking about singleness. And he's talking about it as a gift. The first portions that he's talking about, the first examples are something that Believe it or not, still happens in certain Arab kingdoms around the world today, although most people probably don't realize that, is that what he was talking about in ancient times, kings would have multiple wives. And so they would take a slave, a male slave, and castrate them and put them in charge of the wives so that the idea being that man, a full-grown man, 
was able to protect all of the women from any other would-be men trying to sneak in or anything like that and acknowledge that that individual could never do anything with any of the women. If it's uncomfortable for you, imagine me. That's the first point that of some a slave who was forcibly castrated. The second way that he writes it is kind of this idea that some people are born unable to have children. So he's using kind of two physical ideas. These two things happen physically to men in this world at this time. But the third <coughs> is distinctly different. And the third is another area where we never want to talk about it. And so we get to today. Singleness as spiritual gift. Singleness as an individual, male or female, determining that they're not going to marry and instead they're going to focus their life on the kingdom of God. Meaning their anticipation of the kingdom draws them to some work that simply doesn't allow them the time nor the motivation or in some instances perhaps even the desire for a spouse. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in this last, in this last example in the middle of 12. There are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Paul expands on this, and this is probably the more kind of bigger example. Some of it we, we read last week, but not all of it. It's in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Now, Paul is, is one such as these. He is unmarried. And we even know there's a point where he points to the other, an argument where he points to the other apostles, and he's like, are Barnabas and I the only ones that have to work? Everyone else is married and has a wife. And so he even speaks of it in a sense of, that might be nice, but this is what I was called to. <coughs> Excuse me. So Paul, in, in chapter 7, after talking about marriage, and we, talked, we read some of this last, last week in 12, it said, the rest I say, um, uh, I, not the Lord, brother, uh, has a wife who is an unbeliever, and this is kind of the concession if they leave. Um, then going down a little bit further, in 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And this is kind of another thing. He talks where he's circumcised, don't get on, you know, that kind of thing. Um, were you a slave? Don't be concerned about it. And then going down to 25, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment at one who by the Lord's mercy is, mercy is trustworthy. I think that in the view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do you not seek to be free? Kind of, he's playing on the, the certificate aspect. Um, do you seek a wife? But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman, woman marries, she has not sinned. He's talking about what we would call engagement. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. That's the kind of the initial thing. Paul's talking in an eschatological sense, meaning the last age is upon us. Uh, Messiah has gone back to the right hand of the Father. We simply await his return. 
And so since we're in these last times or this last age, um, don't be concerned overly with these things that you see around you as norms in society. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no, as if they had thin pages. No goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. If you want to be free from anxieties, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. There he's talking about himself and those like him. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. So Paul introduces at least this idea of singleness as something that is necessary for the body of Christ. But it is not, it is unique in the sense that it's not the norm. And so there's always going to be people who are single in the church. But here I want to announce where we might get this wrong when interacting with single people in the church. Number one, walking up to them with someone of the opposite sex that you happen to meet somewhere and said, hey, This is so-and-so. I'll see you guys later. And there they are going, what is this? Well, it's pretty clear what it is. They're trying to set you up. They think your real problem is that you're not married. But have you ever actually talked to that person about marriage? Have you talked to them about their desire for marriage? Have you asked them anything at all? So the assumption of singleness in the church generally, in evangelical circles at least, has been like almost like something's wrong with that person, and in order to fix it, I'm going to fix them up rather than get to know them. Another thing goes in the opposite direction. If someone is single in the church and you assume that's what they want, maybe it's not. Maybe their true desire is to be married. And maybe that's something that hurts. Maybe that's something that's painful for them, especially when most of their friends are married and have children. That's the reality of of, there's this gift. It's It's a spiritual gift that Paul is talking about. And it will be one that is kind of Paul is saying, like, here's the deal. This person's going to dedicate themselves to the Lord where a married man has to divide his attentions. He's not being uh, sarcastic or he's not looking down on marriage. He's, he's saying, in reality, a married man can't dedicate himself to the Lord the way that a person gifted with singleness can, any more than a married woman versus a single woman can. This is, this is just a reality of of responsibilities and time and all these things. So so I wanted to say this about singleness in the church, as well as divorce, as well as marriage, as well as remarriage, as well as children, as well as the pain of being unable to have children or losing children and all these things that accompany us in the body of Christ.
we run the risk at all times of being weighed down by either pain, loss, sorrow, disappointment, rejection. The list goes on and on and on and on. And what Paul, in 1 Corinthians at least, is pointing us to in Jesus throughout all the Gospels is your focus should be on the kingdom. Whatever pain you've endured as a child of divorce or having gone through divorce or contemplating it, Christ calls you to himself. Whatever disappointment you have in this life, in your place, in marriage, or lack of marriage, or children, lack of children, Christ comforts you by the Holy Spirit and calls you to understand that one day in Matthew 22, there will be none given into marriage. Rather, all will be like the angels. Your inheritance in the kingdom will be beyond your comprehension to what you imagine joy and peace and love and everything you have now on this side of eternity will be as nothing compared to what you will experience in Christ. Singleness as a gift. There are a few in the history of the church that you might not realize were never married. Augustine, considered the greatest of, of theologians outside of, and I have to say this because I always get emails, outside of the apostles and Jesus, obviously. He's considered the most influential theologian in the history of the church. And he lived a very depraved life until he was saved. And he never got married. Thomas Aquinas, man, not quite as influential. The same way. Martin Luther wasn't married until he was 42. John Calvin when he was 35. And they had to come out of the, the whole idea of the priesthood and the minister's could not be married, a, man, a mandate of singleness, which led to all types of ruin. Most people don't realize that when the Roman Catholic Church actually instituted that by fiat, they went throughout Europe and forced priests and ministers to divorce their wives. Yeah. Yeah. It caused rebellions. I mean, it was, it, was, it was something that for over 200 years they had to enforce over and over again, forcibly divorcing the priesthood from their wives, which is nowhere found in the text. The uniqueness of the singleness is clear. So the point of all of this dialogue, the point of all of this discussion on Jesus is marriage, divorce, singleness, what makes up the kingdom? What makes up those who will inherit the kingdom? 
here and now it looks a lot like married couples with children as well as singles, as well as those who have been divorced and remarried all within a household of the local assembly, all called together by the same gospel of Jesus Christ, the same recognition that you are sinners who have been redeemed by the power of the gospel through the drawing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit and bound together in communion with one another through the same Spirit and now are put to work together. That mixed bag that I just gave an example of, which, yes, makes up our congregation and all congregations, all put together, one Spirit, one purpose. Go, therefore, baptizing those in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we'll all be with you always. And so such a time as the kingdom comes until Christ returns, broken vessels are put together. Different levels of brokenness and sinfulness and hurt and pain and hope. Hope, the singular hope that one day all of that will be done away with. One day the beauty of redemption in fullness will be realized as Christ, the faithful and true bridegroom, calls his church, his bride, home. And in that, we will all celebrate together one day in perfection and sinless glory. Until such a time, may you be empowered by the Holy Spirit wherever you are in marriage, in singleness, May the hope of the gospel break down whatever pain and sin and fear and loss you have. May Christ be triumphant and preeminent in your life. Heavenly Father, we pray that the household of God would be singular in thought and mind. to the power of your gospel and the truth of your word. Lord, confront us through the word where we have sinned, where we have erred, and where we continue to fall short in our thoughts, in our actions. And Lord, call us to a life refreshed by the power of the gospel that in us, broken sinners and rebels, before we were born, you loved us. And in your humiliation, bled and were broken and died for us, your people. May we be reminded of your love. Now strengthen us as we go out from this, the Lord's day, into a week ahead of us, 
confronted and being interacting, working, and operating in a fallen world that does not operate according to the principles of your word. Let us be bold in our faith. Let us be kind in our speech. Let us cling to one another in this local assembly until your return. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.